Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 7th Tuesday reading of the Fort Collins Coloradan. My name is Sue Frederick. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Loveland Airport. Plane owners rankled by plan to raise aging hangars by Pat Ferrier. Trump says he won't think about leaving race by David Jackson. Many Dems sour on second Biden bid by Steve Peoples. Memories of Wounded Knee Reflect Mixed Legacy by Steve Karnowski and following up with miscellaneous articles. Loveland Airport. Plane owners rankled by plan to raise aging hangers by Pat Ferrier of the Coloradan. Loveland. Dozens of private plane owners are scrambling to figure out how to keep their aircraft at Northern Colorado Regional Airport amid airport leaders' plans to bulldoze nearly 60 aging hangars due to critical safety issues. Citing a structural analysis that showed units in the three westernmost hangars had outlived their lifespan, were irreparable, and could not be retrofitted to meet current codes, the Northern Colorado Regional Airport Commission voted 6-0 to zero Thursday to terminate hangar leases in rows A and B in May and in row C in October. After listening to a dozen aircraft owners tell of the hardships they'd face finding new hangars, commissioners agreed to give owners until April 20th to come up with an alternate plan that would buy them more time. Commissioner Jerry Stooksbury said the commission was concerned about safety and liability. We've been told these buildings might come down at any time, he said. We are trying to do the right thing. In a prepared statement following a 90-minute closed-door session Thursday, Commission Chairman Don Overcash said the board faced a difficult decision that it knew would be unpopular with hangar owners, many of whom have been at the airport for decades. But the risk level was too great, and the cost of repairing the hangars too high, he said. The airport and municipal owners... Collins and Loveland gained ownership of the farthest west three rows of T-hangers that range from 45 to 57 years old when their land leases expired in 2019. The airport has about 250 hangars, including small T-hangers of about 980 square feet and large, privately built hangars for corporate jets, like those owned by Fort Collins billionaire philanthropist Pat Stryker. Demand for hangar space became critical after the Fort Collins downtown airport closed in 2006, sending many general aviation aircraft owners to Fort Collins Loveland Municipal Airport, now known as Northern Colorado Regional Airport. The airport has a long wait list for hangar space, aircraft owners said. Buildings that house the 58 hangars have issues with framing and foundations, including damage caused when wind blew off the overhead doors, 
According to a structural analysis from Fort Collins engineering firm, Dyksco Project and Construction Services. The structural framing members are not salvageable due to the ongoing damage from wind, snow loading, soil heave, and poor foundational connection and support, the report said. Pilots face decisions about storing or selling their aircraft. None of the pilots who addressed the commission disagreed about the hangars being in rough shape, but they pleaded for more time to come up with a solution that would not force them to leave FNL, leave their planes outside, or sell their aircraft outright. Civil Air Patrol, the civilian auxiliary of the Air Force, which often assists with search and rescue efforts and other emergencies, keeps a plane in one of the hangars slated for demolition. Major Mike Fassey, Director of Public Affairs for the CAP's Rocky Mountain Region, said if the agency loses its hangar, it may have to house its plane in Greeley, if there is space. But it would add a delay of more than 45 minutes in getting aircraft in the air during an emergency because most of its pilots live in Larimer County. The commission instructed airport manager Jason Lycan to discuss options with FASI in hopes of keeping a plane in Loveland. Steve McClintock, founding member of the FNL Pilots Association, said the hangars have been in the same condition for decades and could be repaired with minor fixes. He and other hangar tenants offered to provide the airport commission with documents releasing them from any financial liability in case of structural failure. Fort Collins City Manager Kelly DiMartino, one of two City of Fort Collins representatives on the commission, said she wrestled with the tension between the significant structural concerns and the impact on hangar tenants. None of us are happy about this. The decision to cancel the leases in May and October leaves aircraft owners with few options other than relocating to other general aviation airports in Greeley, Longmont, Boulder, or Denver, if they can find room, McClintock said. Ben Vesey and his father, Steve, have two antique aircraft housed at FNL, a Silver Luscombe built in the 1940s-50s and a Cessna 195 manufactured between 1947 and 1954. The Luscombe, once parked at Fort Collins Downtown Airport, is now in a hangar that's expected to be raised. Steve Bessie told the commission his polished aluminum luscombe could not be out in the elements for even a day without it being destroyed. It looks and feels like it's brand new because it has been hangered for its entire life. It can't sit outside and certainly not at the beginning of hail season. You can't tear up the hangers and put us outside, he said. With no other place to hanger his plane, Bessie said he'll have no option but to sell. You are booting me out of aviation. Ben Bessie said he's on waiting lists at every airport between Greeley and Colorado Springs. The closest is a year-long wait in Colorado Springs. Bessie, a corporate pilot based at Centennial Airport, said if he can't find new hangar space, he'll have to sell the antique Cessna, which he said was pretty much the first business aircraft. It takes a lot to keep the aircraft maintained, and although the hangar is a small part of that, it is a necessity, he said. 
the Cessna is all polished aluminum, and if put outside, it will deteriorate and be destroyed in a year or two. The Bessies pay $400 per month for one hangar and $300 for another, based on size. This is the second time in two years the private aircraft owners were threatened with displacement. In 2021, the Commission backed away from considering a plan from the Jet Center, its fixed-based operator, to build jet hangars on the site. The plan would have raised the same T-hangers that are now being threatened. Trump says he won't think about leaving race. Bows retribution as legal threats loom. By David Jackson, USA Today. Washington. Donald Trump remains the Republican frontrunner for 2024, but many obstacles lie ahead, including the prospect of indictments, as the former president himself acknowledged over the weekend. During his visit to this year's Conservative Political Action Conference, Trump made clear he would stay in the 2024 race even if prosecutors in Atlanta and or Washington, D.C. bring charges against him over efforts to reverse his 2020 election loss. I won't even think about leaving, Trump told reporters before a CPAC speech Saturday in which he attacked the establishment of Democrats and Republicans and accused prosecutors of seeking to derail his presidential bid. Probably it'll enhance my numbers, Trump added. The former president's speech to a pro-Trump CPAC crowd came at a busy time in the still early race for the Republican presidential race for 2024. Indictments coming from Georgia, New York, the feds. Many Republicans opposed to Trump are awaiting developments in the long-running legal battle that could include the first-ever criminal indictment of a former president. Prosecutors in Atlanta are considering charges against Trump over the pressure he applied to Georgia state officials to overturn his 2020 loss to President Joe Biden. Trump's efforts to overturn the election in several states are also part of the U.S. Justice Department probe of his actions in and around the insurrection of January 6, 2021. A DOJ special counsel is also looking at Trump's handling of classified documents after leaving the White House on January 20, 2021. And prosecutors in New York are reportedly looking at Trump's past business practices, including alleged hush money payments to a former mistress. Republican challengers. Any number of Republicans are preparing to challenge Trump for the GOP presidential nomination to be awarded at the convention in Milwaukee in July of 2024. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has polled well against Trump, is launching a book tour that includes several primary states. DeSantis is expected to decide on a 2024 run after the Florida legislative session ends in May. Nikki Haley has already announced her 2024 campaign. The former South Carolina governor and Trump-appointed U.N. ambassador also spoke at CPAC. So did another potential challenger, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. One rival who won't be running is former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a frequent Trump critic. The GOP moderate 
worries a crowded field would help the former president recapture the nomination as he did in 2016 by emerging from a large group of Republicans who split the anti-Trump vote. Polls show Trump surging again. Trump addressed CPAC after four recent polls, Emerson, Yahoo News, YouGov, Echelon Insights, and Fox gave him bigger leads in the GOP primary race over DeSantis and other potential GOP rivals. The Yahoo News YouGov poll gave Trump an 8 percentage point lead over DeSantis, 47% to 39%. The Florida governor had a 4-point lead over the ex-president in a similar poll in early February. Underwhelming midterms reflected poorly on Trump. Trump's poll surge comes after months of negative publicity that began with the November midterm elections. Trump-style candidates lost pivotal elections as the Republicans failed to reclaim control of the U.S. Senate from the Democrats. The GOP did win control of the House, but only by nine votes, a lackluster performance that many Republicans blamed on losses by Trump-style candidates. The ex-president later took heat for hosting a dinner that included anti-Semitic rapper Ye, Kanye West, and white supremacist organizer Nick Fuentes, who was denied entry to this week's CPAC confab. Trump's lost elections. At CPAC, Haley and Pompeo did not cite Trump directly, but did refer to Republican setbacks in three straight elections, including the 2018 congressional elections and 2020 presidential contest. If you're tired of losing, then put your trust in a new generation, Haley said. Pompeo took veiled swipes at Trump in his CPAC speech and a Fox News Sunday interview, particularly over growth of the national debt when his former boss was in office. Six trillion dollars more in debt, he told Fox. That's never the right direction for the country. Pompeo did appear to wade into a Trump critique before CPAC, telling delegates, we can't become the left, following celebrity leaders with their own brand of identity politics, those with fragile egos who refuse to acknowledge reality. Trump versus DeSantis? Trump, meanwhile, has stepped up his criticism of DeSantis, though the Florida governor has held off fighting back. In an interview with Fox News' Jesse Waters, DeSantis said he doesn't pay attention to the background noise from Trump. He used to say how great of a governor I was, and then I win a big victory, and all of a sudden, you know, he had different opinions. Trump declares, I am your retribution. In his CPAC speech, Trump signaled a campaign designed largely to get back at his many enemies, be they Republican opponents, Biden administration officials, or prosecutors. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Trump told CPAC attendees. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. Many Dems sour on second Biden bid. Party's establishment differs from rank and file. By Steve Peoples of the Associated Press. Laconia, New Hampshire. 
Steve Shurtleff was at Joe Biden's side in 2019 when he filed papers in the New Hampshire State House to run for president. He repeatedly crossed the state with Biden to court primary voters. And when Biden won the presidency, it was Shurtleff, then the Democratic State House Speaker, who proudly sealed the envelope that carried New Hampshire's four electoral votes, including his own name, to the U.S. Senate. But on the eve of a new election season, Shurtleff, like a majority of Democrats across the country, feels that one term is enough. In my heart of hearts, no, Shurtleff said when asked if he wants Biden to run again. I think a lot of people just don't want to say it. Democrats across New Hampshire are upset with the Democratic president for trying to end the state's status as home to the first in the nation presidential primary. But their concerns about Biden run much deeper, in line with the majority of Democratic voters nationwide, who question the 80-year-old president's plans to soon launch his re-election campaign. Just 37% of Democrats nationwide want the president to seek a second term, according to a poll released last month by the Associated Press and ORC Center for Public Affairs Research. That was down from 52% in the weeks before last year's midterm elections. Many worry about Biden's age. Others, like Shirtleff, are upset about the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the party's progressive wing has never been enthusiastic about Biden, who is perceived as a moderate, despite his lengthy list of achievements. The White House cast Biden's perceived weakness within his own party as an exaggerated narrative that he has repeatedly proved wrong. We're aware Pundit's attitude toward President Biden is unchanged from before he earned the nomination faster than anyone since 2004, won the most votes in American history, built the strongest legislative record in generations, and led the best midterm outcome for a new Democratic president in 60 years, Biden spokesman Andrew Bates said. Based on comparing the accuracy of our predictions versus theirs, we are happy for this dynamic to continue. Still, there's a risk of a disconnect between rank-and-file Democrats and the party's establishment. While voters are signaling unease about the prospect of another Biden campaign, Democratic governors, senators, and congressional representatives are virtually unanimous in supporting Biden's re-election. One exception may be New Hampshire, a small swing state whose electoral votes could be critical in a tight general election. The state has challenged Biden before. Voters here served Biden an embarrassing fifth-place finish in the 2020 Democratic primary. New Hampshire polls were still open when he decamped to South Carolina, where his presidential ambitions were revived by a decisive win. That state is now Biden's pick to lead the 2024 presidential primary calendar. Interviews with angry New Hampshire Democrats across state government and local Democratic committees suggest there is some appetite for a serious primary challenger in 2024. But top-tier prospects don't seem to be interested. So far, only Democratic activist and author Marianne Williamson has entered the 2024 primary field. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the late New York senator and known for railing against vaccines, 
met with New Hampshire voters on Friday. He's leaning toward a bid. But Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Biden's fiercest primary challenger in 2020, has vowed to back the president in 2024. So has Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, whose appearance at last year's New Hampshire State Democratic Convention still comes up in conversation. Memories of Wounded Knee Reflect Mixed Legacy by Steve Karnowski of the Associated Press, Minneapolis. Tensions that had been smoldering on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota flared up 50 years ago, February 27th, when activists from the American Indian Movement took over the town of Wounded Knee. In the view of the protesters, Oglala Sioux Tribal Chairman Dick Wilson was in cahoots with the Bureau of Indian Affairs and other federal authorities and used threats of violence to intimidate his critics. But the 71-day occupation quickly morphed into an outpouring of anger with the federal government over decades of broken treaties, the theft of ancestral lands, forced assimilation, and other injustices dating back centuries. Two Native Americans died in the fighting, and a U.S. Marshal was left paralyzed. Wounded Knee had already been seared into history as the site of an 1890 massacre by U.S. Army Cavalry troops in one of the last major military operations against Native Americans on the Northern Plains. Accounts vary, but the massacre left around 300 Lakota dead, including children, women, and older people. Congress apologized in 1990. Ahead of the 50th anniversary of the occupation, the Associated Press reached out to people who were at Wounded Knee or involved from a distance to hear their stories. Dwayne Camp. Dwayne Camp, a member of the Ponca tribe of Oklahoma, was in California when his younger brother Carter called to say he and other leaders of the American Indian movement took a group of activists into Wounded Knee. He was telling me they were in a hell of a fight, Camp, now 85, recalled. I heard the gunfire and that was all I needed. I went up there and stayed for the duration of the standoff. Their brother, Craig, a Vietnam veteran, also joined them. Camp said the rifles and shotguns the occupiers took from the trading post in town were no match for the weapons and armored vehicles the feds had. We were going to make it very expensive should they go ahead and roll in, Camp said. It didn't come to that, thank goodness. Camp remembers the occupation with pride as a very vital time that changed his life. He said he experienced the freest feeling that I could ever imagine. He met AIM leaders who became famous, including Dennis Banks, Clyde Bellacourt, and Russell Means. It was also a spiritual awakening for many occupiers and visitors, he said, with sweat lodge ceremonies providing a chance for prayer and learning about their traditions. And it helped change the way Native Americans across the country saw themselves, Camp said. The Native, Native people of this land, after Wounded Knee, they had like a surge of new pride in being Native people, he said. Camp said the takeover was a catalyst for policy changes that had been unimaginable before, including the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act, the Indian Child Welfare Act, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, 
and the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, to name a few, and it provided a focus for his own activism. After we left Wounded Knee, it became paramount that protecting Mother Earth was our foremost issue, he said. Since that period of time, we've learned that we've got to teach our kids our true history. Camp seized the fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline, which drew thousands of indigenous people and supporters to the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota in 2016 and 2017, as a continuation of the resurgence fueled by Wounded Knee. We're not the subjugated and disenfranchised people that we were, he said. Wounded Knee was an important beginning of that. And because we're a resilient people, it's something we take a lot of pride in. Camp said he wished he could return to Pine Ridge for the 50th anniversary observances, but traveling isn't easy at his age. Instead, he planned to get together with his surviving brother, Craig, who lives near him in Ponca. They'll burn some of the sacred sage that family members bring back every year from South Dakota. Jim Huggins FBI Special Agent Jim Huggins was on the other side of the roadblocks. He was one of several agents from the Denver FBI office who went to Wounded Knee to back up their colleagues. It was a dangerous situation, recalled Huggins, 83, who's retired and lives in Frankfort, Kentucky. The people that took over the town of Wounded Knee were a group of militants, mostly out of Minneapolis. They were dedicated members of the American Indian Movement and were very anti-FBI. Huggins said there was often an exchange of gunfire between the two sides. Phil Hogan Phil Hogan was chief of staff to new U.S. new U.S. Representative James Abnor, whose district included the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation when the occupation began just a few weeks after they moved to Washington. We were sort of on the front page of the Washington Post for 71 days while this was going on, Hogan recalled. He said Abnor did not look kindly on that disruption. He was all for resolving differences, but... He said they worked hard to try to find a resolution, consulting with the FBI, the U.S. Marshals Service, and the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs. Hogan, 77, who lives off the reservation in Black Hawk, South Dakota, now has mixed but mostly negative views on the occupation. It was regrettable in many respects, he said. That is, the disruption of government, the confrontation, the loss of lives. I don't know that all those wounds have yet healed. But at the end of the day, there was a greater awareness of American Indian, Native American concerns and injustices they had been exposed to. FBI reports historic gun seizure pace. COVID run on firearms revealed flaws in process. By Kevin Johnson, USA Today, Washington. The FBI has been issuing more seizure orders for guns sold to suspected prohibited buyers than at any time in the history of the federal firearm background check system, according to the most recent data compiled by the Bureau. More than 6,300 such referrals were transmitted to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives in 2020 to take back weapons from buyers when background checks later determined they may have been ineligible because of criminal records, mental health histories, disqualifying military service records, and other bans. 
An additional 5,200 directives were issued in 2021, adding to the largest two-year total by far since the National Instant Criminal Background Check System began publishing data in 1998. The numbers follow years of surging firearm sales, yet they also underscore a long-standing tension in the system. Federally licensed dealers are permitted to proceed with weapon sales in cases when background checks are not completed within the required three business days. Seizure orders are issued when analysts later conclude that buyers likely should have been barred. The FBI noted that the retrieval orders represent a fraction of the millions of gun checks processed in 2020 and 2021. The 2022 data is not yet available. Historically, the NICS section has experienced an increase in firearm retrieval referrals as increases in overall background check volume occurs, the FBI said in response to questions from USA Today. The ATF said the agency investigates any delayed denials referred to us from the FBI, especially those resulting in the transfer of a firearm to a person who is prohibited from possessing firearms. The agency referred questions about possible causes for sudden changes in the data to the FBI, but suggested that an increase in total background checks could foreseeably have a corresponding increase in delayed transactions and thus delayed denials. But analysts suggested that the unusual spike in seizure orders is due in part to the aftershocks of the coronavirus pandemic. Gun sales skyrocketed during the height of the pandemic. A record 39.6 million background checks were initiated in 2020, placing increased pressure on the background check system. As a result, FBI examiners also were more likely to find that COVID-19 had emptied local courthouses and prosecutors' offices around the country, where clerks and administrators provide crucial assistance in vetting the criminal histories of prospective gun buyers, analysts said. The first thing you expect when there is a spike in gun sales is that there will be a corresponding increase in delayed denials, said Stephen Morris, a former assistant FBI director who once oversaw NICS operations. The timing clearly suggests that COVID was a factor in this. There was an absence at those offices that play a role in the overall background check process. I can't help but believe there was some serious inefficiencies. David Chipman, a former ATF official who helped oversee the firearm retrieval program during his time at the agency, also pointed to COVID's transformation of the workplace as almost certainly contributing to the troubling increase in retrieval orders. I would have been surprised if there wasn't a spike, said Chipman, the Biden administration's first nominee to lead the ATF. COVID made the process more difficult. The FBI said the volume of background checks and other operational aspects can be impacted by a variety of factors, such as COVID, but it was not possible to pinpoint the full effect of any one particular factor. While the numbers accounted for a small percentage of the 8.5 million transactions vetted by the NICS system that year, the FBI described the potential public safety risk in stark detail at that time. 
the 2000 annual NICS operations report recounted an incident in which a Cleveland area dealer proceeded with a gun sale to a gang member when the required background investigation was not completed within the three-day period. The day after the sale, an associate of the buyer, also a gang member, used the gun to rob an East Cleveland restaurant, according to the FBI report. Those problematic transactions, the FBI report concluded, place demands on law enforcement agencies, particularly the ATF, which has the jurisdiction to retrieve the firearm. Retrievals expose law enforcement agents to potential risks and divert ATF's already limited special agent resources from other investigations, the report stated. Chipman, who also had served as a senior policy advisor for the Giffords Law Center, which advocates for more gun restrictions, said the risks to law enforcement have never abated and are baked in to a background check system that favors gun buyers and dealers. The three business day deadline for background check examiners does not account for the crushing volume of transactions that increases almost every year, he said. This is a security system set up in such a way as not to inconvenience gun buyers and sellers, Chipman said. There is no other security system that I'm aware of that is set up in this way. Think of it. The TSA, Transportation Security Administration, was set up to prevent another 9-11. But the nature of that job requires putting people at some inconvenience. Sheriff releases police video from fatal shooting near Windsor by Rebecca Powell and Sarah Kyle of the Fort Collins, Colorado. The Larimer County Sheriff's Office on Friday released audio and body camera video footage from a November fatal shooting involving deputies who had stopped a suspect near Crossroads Boulevard and Sentara Parkway in Windsor. The 8th Judicial District Attorney's Office said in a letter dated February 9th that the actions of three deputies were justified in the fatal shooting of Justin Anderson, 51, on November 21, 2022. In that letter, District Attorney Gordon McLaughlin said deputies Justin Napolitano, Jonathan Wedgmeyer, and Jamie Smith would not face any criminal charges related to the shooting. According to previous Coloradan reporting, deputies had followed the suspect north on Interstate 25 from the Berthoud exit after attempting to stop him for a non-functioning headlight and speeding. In the video released Friday, Sheriff John Fayen said the vehicle had a missing front license plate. Deputies had noticed him while conducting a proactive patrol for drug activity at a gas station. According to the DA's letter, Anderson evaded deputies and a vehicle pursuit ensued. Napolitano reported that during this pursuit, he learned that Anderson had multiple active felony warrants and the truck he was driving was connected to another eluding incident. When Anderson's truck exited I-25 at Crossroads Boulevard, deputies used a precision immobilization technique to stop the vehicle. They boxed in the truck with their vehicles. The video released Friday includes the incident as recorded by each of the deputies' body cameras. It shows the moment Napolitano gets out of his vehicle and fires three shots. Anderson's truck is then seen pinched between law enforcement vehicles and its engine begins revving as deputies get out of their vehicles and point their weapons at the truck and fire. 
McLaughlin wrote that Napolitano saw Anderson reach for something from behind the passenger seat and then saw him loading a high-capacity magazine into a rifle Napolitano believed would defeat the soft armor he and the other deputies wore. He later told investigators that he was convinced this was a deadly force situation and Anderson was a second away from shooting and killing him or other deputies. Napolitano shot at Anderson three times in about four seconds, McLaughlin said. The bullet believed to have killed Anderson came from Napolitano's gun. Wedemeyer and Smith fired their weapons when they saw the truck's tires spinning after Napolitano's third shot. McLaughlin wrote that Wedemeyer thought Anderson was trying to escape and would run over Napolitano, and Smith believed he was trying to kill Napolitano and thought his life as well as her own were at risk due to the acceleration. Wedemeyer shot at the truck five times in about seconds, and Smith shot at it two or three times. Additional responding deputies who took over the scene found Anderson deceased in the truck with a twenty-two caliber rifle in his hand. Fentanyl pills and drug paraphernalia were also recovered from the suspect's pocket, Fan said. Today's obituaries and death notices. Steve A. Eberhardt, age 91, of Cary, North Carolina, died March 1st. Services with Brown Wind Funeral Home. Christopher Morgan, age 31, Fort Collins, died February 28th. Arrangements with Vessi Funeral Service. Wilbur W. Struthite, age 95, Fort Collins, died February 27th. Arrangements with Allnut Drake Chapel. Jacqueline E. Valdez, age 80, Fort Collins, died February 23rd. Arrangements with Allnut Drake Chapel. Courts. Women's College Basketball Hammond Visits CSU as Hothschild Wins Award by Kevin Lettle of Fort Collins, Colorado. One Colorado State legend was at practice, and one emerging legend earned another top award. It was a big Mountain West tournament eve for the Colorado State women's basketball team Sunday. The league announced that star point guard McKenna Hofschild was voted MW Player of the Year by the league's coaches. CSU legend Becky Hammond, who coaches the Las Vegas Aces, was on hand in the locker room at practice in Las Vegas to help share the news of the award. The Rams were set to open the Mountain West Tournament at 8.30 p.m. Mountain on Monday, March 6, as the number three seed, playing number six Boise State, after the Broncos beat number 11 Utah State on Sunday. Hofschild led the MW in points per game, 20.9, assist turnover ratio, 3.48, assists per game, 7.2, and minutes per game, 37.2, among several other statistical categories. Hofschild is seven assists away from matching her own school record for single-season assists. She's now been named all-conference in all three of her seasons at CSU, and is eligible for another year as a Ram. Hammond was a three-time WAC Player of the Year at CSU and spoke to the Rams ahead of the MW tournament. She told CSURams.com that she has to leave Las Vegas on Monday and wanted to speak to the team before they played. 
Destiny Thurman wins award. CSU's Destiny Thurman also joined Hofschild as the first team all-conference list, and she was named the Mountain West's Newcomer of the Year. Thurman is averaging 13.2 points and 4.7 rebounds per game in her first season as a Ram after transferring in from UTEP. It's the third year in a row for a CSU player winning Newcomer of the Year, as Thurman follows Yuk Atasu last season and Hofschild the year before. Kaylin Crocker was named Honorable Mention All-Conference. Larson Falls Short on Strong Hendrick Day by Kelly Crandall, Racer, USA Today Network. Kyle Larson was a part of the Hendrick Motorsports 1-2-3 finish Sunday at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and for a minute, it looked like he would be the one leading the order. He finished second, though, stung by the caution that flew with four laps to go and set up overtime. Larson came off pit road second to teammate and eventual winner William Byron, but restarted third because Martin Truex Jr. stayed out. Larson laughed when asked what he thought when the caution came out. He had taken the lead on lap 196, which was early in the final stage. On fresher tires, the number five hunted down and passed Denny Hamlin to take control of the race. He cycled back into the top spot with 39 laps to go after a round of green flag pit stops. As the laps wound down, Larson drove away. The Californian held a lead of nearly five seconds over Byron inside the final 20 laps and was still over two seconds ahead with less than 10 laps to go, even as he navigated traffic. The final caution was for Eric Almarola in turn four. Almarola started to spin and bounced off the wall with the right rear. It's just part of cup racing, said Larson. It seems like you count the laps down lap by lap and then, sure enough, the yellow lights come on. You just have to get over that and try to execute a good pit stop. And I thought I did a really good job getting to my sign and getting to the commitment line. I had a gap to William behind me. Their pit crew must have done a really good job and got him out in front of us, and that gave up the front row. I knew I was in trouble with the number 19, Truex, staying out. I felt like William was going to get by him. It's a bummer that we didn't end up the winner, but all in all, William probably had a little better car than I had today, and their pit crew executed when they needed to at the end. Larson led 63 laps. Byron dominated the event by sweeping both stages and leading 176 of 271 laps. Hendrick Motorsports has won the last three spring Las Vegas races. Larson won the race in 2021, Alex Bowman in 2022, and Byron prevailed Sunday. MLB rule changes going great could use tweaks by Bob Nightingale, a columnist with USA Today. Phoenix. It has been a week and a half since Major League Baseball began playing with the most dramatic rule changes in history, adding a pitch clock, banning shifts, playing with enlarged bases, limiting walk-up music to 10 seconds. And you know what? The game has managed to survive just fine. There are tweaks that managers and players would like to see with the pitch clock, and MLB had to issue guidelines to all teams clarifying that umpires will call a quick pitch before the batter is reasonably set. But all in all, it has succeeded beyond MLB's greatest expectations. There were only 1.4 pitch clock violations per game last week, 
with game times averaging 2 hours 38 minutes compared to 3-hour games last spring. It has been so smooth, MLB officials say, they are not currently considering a single modification to any rule. Things are going great right now, one MLB executive said. Still, players and managers have a few concerns, and certainly no one wants a regular season game decided by a pitcher taking too long to throw a pitch or a hitter taking too long to get into the batter's box. I like the pitch clock, Chicago White Sox veteran pitcher Lance Lynn says, but there's too much at stake for a win-loss to be decided when games count because of a rule violation. You can't end a game on a ball four or strike three because of a clock violation. It's like a shot clock, but you lose possession in baseball. You look at football in the last two minutes, there's a different set of challenges. So maybe eighth and ninth inning of close situations, when the game is on the line, it goes back to where it was. It's you versus me. Let's play it straight the last two innings. The real fear is that during the tense postseason games with the boisterous sellout clouds that fans could actually affect the outcome of games. Fans can disrupt the game, Lynn says. If you can get them to do things at the right time and you suddenly can't hear your headset. More pitchers are calling their own game this spring wearing the pitchcom device on their wrist, knowing that you can't shake off the catcher more than twice, maybe three times, without running out of time. It has already led to a few comical incidents. We saw Royals veteran pitcher Zach Greinke shaking himself off, Brewers manager Craig Council said. He was just pushing buttons until he got the one he wanted. He didn't know what button he was pushing. The pitchcom device, you got to learn how to use it. There are nine buttons there. It's kind of in a circle. It's not easy. You still got to get comfortable with it. It causes some anxiety. Most managers surveyed have loved the pitch clock in the early going, but say they would like to make a few modifications. Texas Rangers manager Bruce Bocci hates the idea that if a base runner calls timeout, the timeout will be charged to the hitter. That's where there is some concern, when the times goes on the hitter, Bocci says, I don't like that. The biggest adjustment, managers say, is getting used to the idea that the umpiring crews no longer are in charge of controlling the game. The umpires are instructed to enforce the rules to the letter of the law, no matter how unreasonable it may seem. The thing that stood out to me so far is that there are going to be some mistakes. There are going to be some issues, Cubs manager David Ross says, and we're all working to get better. We're so used to the umpires having everything down and locked in and knowing how things go, this is new to them too. There's a lot of conversation. The umpires, they're kind of finding their new rhythm, says Bocci. Overall, I like it. I'm fine with the clock. I really am. A few coaches think they should add a couple of seconds, but I think they'll get used to it. Eventually, there will be some adjustments. Managers like David Bell of the Cincinnati Reds believe that with pitchers having a limit of two disengagements before a balk is called on an unsuccessful third attempt could create havoc with base runners on first and third. There will be teams taking advantage of that for sure, Bell says. I know we're spending time practicing that. Says Bocci, I do think that's going to be one that gets talked about. You're going to get some false breaks and try to have a forced balk on you. It's going to be interesting how the teams are going to be dealing with that. Every team is looking to see how they can use it to their advantage. Nation and world. Two capital attack suspects vanish. 
Judge Reschedules Florida Woman's Trial by Alana Durkin Richer, the Associated Press. The FBI was searching Monday for a Florida woman who was supposed to stand trial on charges stemming from the January 6, 2021 Capitol attack, as well as another riot defendant who has also gone missing, officials said. A federal judge in Washington issued bench warrants for the arrest of Olivia Pollack and Joseph Hutchinson III last week after the court was notified that they had tampered with or removed the ankle monitors that tracked their location, said Joe Boland, a supervisory special agent with the FBI's Lakeland, Florida office. Boland said the FBI recovered one of the defendant's ankle monitors after they removed it, but declined to say whether it was Pollock's or Hutchinson's. As of Monday afternoon, the FBI had not located either of them, he said. Olivia Pollock of Lakeland is the sister of another January 6th defendant, Jonathan Pollock, who has been on the lam for months. The FBI has offered a reward of up to $30,000 in exchange for information leading to the arrest and conviction of her brother, who is accused of assaulting multiple police officers during the riot. Olivia Pollock and Hutchinson were initially arrested in 2021 and charged in a five-person indictment with assaulting law enforcement and other crimes. Hutchinson is representing himself at trial, and an attorney appointed to assist him as standby counsel declined to comment on Monday. Olivia Pollock's lawyer, Alita Amato, said Monday that her client had been diligently assisting in her defense for her upcoming trial prior to her disappearance. Authorities encouraged anyone with information about their whereabouts to contact the FBI. Olivia Pollock, who was wearing a ballistic plate carrier vest during the riot, is accused of elbowing an officer in the chest and trying to strip the officer's baton away during the melee. Jonathan Pollock is accused of thrusting a riot shield into an officer's face and throat, pulling an officer down steps and punching others. Authorities say Hutchinson pulled back a fence that allowed other rioters to swarm police trying to defend the Capitol, punched an officer and grabbed the sleeve of another before throwing the officer out of his way. Hutchinson, who now lives in Georgia, was scheduled to face trial in August. The judge on Monday rescheduled Olivia Pollock's trial for August as well. Also on Monday, a Colorado man pleaded guilty to using a chemical spray to attack police officers who were trying to hold off the mob. Robert Geiswein of Woodland Park, Colorado, is scheduled to be sentenced on June 9th. Estimated sentencing guidelines for Geiswein recommend a prison sentence ranging from three years and five months to four years and three months, according to his plea agreement. Geiswein was wearing a helmet, flak jacket, and goggles and carrying a baseball bat when he stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021. He marched to the building from the Washington Monument with members of the far-right Proud Boys extremist group. Geiswein repeatedly sprayed an aerosol irritant at police officers, pushed against a line of police, and was one of the first rioters to enter the Capitol, according to a court filing accompanying his guilty plea to assault charges. Federal authorities have said Geiswein appeared to be an adherent of the Three Percenters militia movement and ran a private paramilitary training group called the Woodland Wild Dogs. Nearly 1,000 people have been charged so far in the riot. 
Sentences have ranged from probation for people who pleaded guilty to misdemeanor crimes to 10 years in prison for a retired New York Police Department officer who used a metal flagpole to assault an officer. Man accused of trying to open Jet's door mid-flight. Passengers helped subdue him after crew attacked. Associated Press, Boston. A Massachusetts man tried to open an airliner's emergency door on a cross-country flight from Los Angeles to Boston and then tried to stab a flight attendant in the neck with a broken metal spoon, federal prosecutors alleged Monday. Francisco Severo Torres, 33, of Leominster, was tackled and restrained with the aid of passengers and arrested Sunday at Boston Logan International Airport when United Airlines Flight 2609 landed, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston said in a statement. He was charged with interference and attempted interference with flight crew members and attendants using a dangerous weapon, the statement added. The man was detained at an initial appearance in federal court on Monday and awaits a hearing scheduled for Thursday. An email seeking comment was left with his federal public defender. The plane was about 45 minutes from arrival in Boston when the crew received an alarm that a side door on the aircraft was disarmed, prosecutors said. A flight attendant noticed the door's locking handle had been moved out of the fully locked position about a quarter of the way toward the unlocked position and that the emergency slide arming lever had been moved to the disarmed position, authorities said. The crew secured the door and slide. A door in an airplane cannot be opened once in flight due to cabin pressure. Another flight attendant had noticed that Taurus was seen near the door and believed he had tampered with it, authorities said. The crew told the captain that he was a threat and the plane should be landed as soon as possible. At that point, prosecutors allege Torres got out of his seat, approached two flight attendants standing in the aisle, and used the spoon to make stabbing motions, hitting a flight attendant three times in the neck. Passengers tackled Torres, who was restrained with the assistance of the crew. According to a charging document, Torres told investigators that he went into the airplane's bathroom and broke a spoon in half to make a weapon. When he came out of the bathroom, Torres said he went into the galley, disarmed the door, and tried unsuccessfully to open it, with the idea of jumping out of the plane, according to the document. Investigators said Torres admitted knowing that if he opened the door, many people would die. Torres also said that he was then confronted by flight attendants and, in an, attempted, in an attempt to defend himself, stabbed one of the attendants in the neck three or four times, according to investigators. They added Torres said he believed the flight attendant was trying to kill him, so he was trying to kill the attendant first. Authorities did not say where Torres got the spoon, but TSA rules allow airline passengers to bring metal utensils, except knives, onto planes. United Airlines said no one was injured. Thanks to the quick action of our crew and customers, one customer was restrained after becoming a security concern on United Flight 2609 from Los Angeles to Boston, the company statement said. The flight landed safely and was met by law enforcement. The airline said it has a zero-tolerance policy for violence and that tourists will be banned from flying on United pending an investigation. One passenger told investigators that Torres had asked where on the safety card it showed where the door handle was located 
during the flight attendant's pre-takeoff safety briefing, prosecutors said. If convicted, he could face life in prison. Thank you for joining us for the Fort Collins, Colorado. My name is Sue Frederick. AINC programming is made possible by the Collins Foundation. AINC presents your low vision resource of the day. Today we want to highlight the Xavier Society for the Blind. This organization is similar to AINC, but instead of newspapers and magazines, provides recorded religious material in Braille and audio. Learn more by visiting www.xavierssocietyforthebline.org calling 212-473-7800 or emailing info at x-a-v-i-e-r-s-o-c-i-e-t-y-f-o-r-t-h-e-b-l-i-n-d dot org. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado.